You're listening to a podcast produced by Kayama Community Radio. This is Kayama Community Radio. I'm Bernie Hems, and I have got Jane Stroud, CEO of Kayama Municipal Council, with me. Welcome, Jane. Hello, how are you? (laughs) I'm good, thanks. Can I ask you, what does a typical day in the life of Jane Stroud, what does it look like? (laughs) A little bit of bedlam. (laughs) Look, it usually starts pretty early. Um, I've got young twins, so they tend to get up really early. Uh, And then, like lots of people out there, I have to get the kids to work and, uh, sorry, to school, their version of work. And then usually I will head to the office after that. Um, And that that really depends on what cycle of meetings we're in. But typically, my diary is pretty packed out with a variety of meetings that gets managed out of the executive office. So um, on any given day, I might be talking to the executive, I might be meeting the managers might have a series of community meetings, catch up with the mayor. Um, It really does depend. If it's council meeting week, it's very much frantic. Yeah. And then after all that, I um, will head home usually about six and try and do the rest of parenting like the world does. (laughs) Get up and do it again. It's a tough gig, isn't it? Yeah. To balance everything is a tough gig, I know that. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so your top priorities. Let's talk about the next 12 months. Between now and this time next year, what are your top priorities for our local council? Uh, what do you want to have achieved in the next 12 months? Yeah, we've got some really big things happening in the next 12 months. Personally, for me, the completion of the divestment process around Blue Haven and that decision-making process for council is going to be really pivotal. Um, so, And it will take a lot of work. So that will be one priority. We need to finish our community engagement plan. And I really want to see us do some quite innovative stuff and try and tap into some unheard voices out there. Um, and not just do what we've always done. So that work will start in the new year. And uh, the other, a couple of other key priorities are going to be around a conversation and an intelligent conversation with the community around a couple of emerging growth fronts and how, as a community, we manage those growth fronts and what, what kind of infrastructure is pivotal and required to support any growth. Um, No surprises there, housing is a top priority for both the state and the feds and we play a role in the provision of housing. So that's going to be quite a challenging but really important conversation that needs to be had in the new year and uh, we'll need to finish the four service reviews that we have going on for holiday parks, the pavilion, waste services and um, the leisure centre. So I really need to get those done. And uh, the organisation itself is going through quite a big piece of cultural work. So I really want to see that work roll out to support the workforce. Okay. Now, the council had a ma- recently had a, a management shake-up following that performance improvement order and that decision to sell off aged care services. Um, how is that working? Yeah, we did go through a restructure. Every council out there, uh, you have 12 months when you're in this role, the general manager or CEO role, uh, of a new council coming in to review your structure. And that review can take the form of a full, really deep dive, or it might just be a, a slight confirmation that what you've got is working. 
for us, I really thought it was time that we did a really comprehensive restructure and um, we'd had a long a long period of time where a lot of folks were acting in roles and that was getting quite hard to manage because of the knock-on effect. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I led that process and created, started with the executive team, then moved to the management team and we're at the coordinator level now. And uh, that body of work is actually all about right-sizing the organisation and trying to figure out on the municipal side of the business how many um, staff, so the full-time establishment, FTEs, we actually need to service the community and to to deliver on what we've committed. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole body of work that you have to do in consultation with your staff and obviously with the unions. So... Um, that process is rolling out and it's going quite well. And how will that new executive team lead the workforce and help set the business up for success, uh, particularly in light of the decision to divest from the aged care services? We've still got a journey to go on with the divestment process and I think I might have said that last time. It will take some time for all of that decision-making. It is their jobs to be accountable and responsible for the services that we provide. They need to provide a really good level of leadership. Corporately, we've done a heap of work around governance and organisational capability. So that looks at training and development, um, having a good workforce plan and knowing how we can best support our staff. And I'm really looking for the directors and our executive and our management team to take responsibility for the departments that they run and to really interface with the community really well and to be quite customer-focused in the way that they deliver their services. That's interesting. How do you envision then that the senior executive team will engage with the councillors and the community? Uh, Well, look, in New South Wales, the councillors engaging with the managers is actually so... It's actually not a thing that is allowed to occur under legislation. Yeah, so... (laughs) Yeah, I know. No, it's really interesting. And obviously, you know, I'm from Queensland. It is very different up there. But um, council sets what we call the acceptable request guidelines or appropriate interactions with staff. And our councillors and our executive have agreed that there can be communications between each other so that um, councillors are able to email or phone um, the exec. As a courtesy, it's always great to keep me CC'd so that I know what's happening and what they're working on. But as for the managers interacting with councillors, we're not over that that bridge just yet. Um, They will always have some casual interactions. You know, it's a small town. Mm. They might even see each other on the weekend or know each other personally. But... In terms of the workforce, no, that isn't something that is encouraged nor allowed in the legislation. (laughs) People are often surprised by that. It makes it hard to run a business. It means that in this role and in the executive team, there's a lot of responsibility for trying to help support and manage that elected body. Well, there's a lot of responsibility on you then to keep keep the communication. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this week we have a briefing session with the councillors. We do those at least once a month. If there are more things that we need to talk to them about, we'll invite them in. But I'm also very conscious that they are part-time and they are, many of them still work and are involved in businesses or have a lot going on. So we try to use their time quite wisely. Mm. Okay. 
talking to Jane Stroud. Um, Jane, the next question I have for you, I mean, you talked about um, the relationship between councillors and your department. So your role is incredibly important in communicating. What's, what's the difference? If you had to describe the difference between your role and the mayor's role, how would, you, how would you describe it? I think it's usually pretty neatly summed up as I'm responsible for all the operations of mm. council and it's my job to make sure that the business it's, is staffed, that we have sufficient human and financial resources and that we're delivering on the strategic direction and the policy decisions that the councillors make. So it's typically summed up as operations versus strategic. Of course, to get the strategic, it's also my job to facilitate that process for the elected representatives. And, and how often are you communicating with the mayor? Oh, every day. Every day? Yep. Every day, quite a lot. <laughs> He'll probably be listening too, so I'll try and be really nice. But no, in all seriousness, the relationship between the mayor and the CEO in any council uh, defines in a lot of ways the council. Um, and that relationship between the mayor and the councillors and all of the councillors and the CEO becomes pivotal to the culture and the effectiveness of the organisation. So, Jane, I'm now looking on the tax line, and interestingly enough, I've got quite a number of tax. Um, shall I just go for it? Yeah, go for it. I reckon I'm going to go for it. Okay, number one, in regards to council operations and activities, a high proportion of community uh, question councils' community engagement, rather lack of. Emails and phone calls are not responded to, so there's no accountability. This makes the community feel like they are genuinely not listened to and ignored. When all council engage with community honestly, respectfully, or when will they engage honestly, respectfully, and actually listen. That's a tough old question there for you, Jane. Yeah, that's I'm sorry right. to start with that one. No, no, you go for it. Um, look, there's a couple of things going on in that question and, you know, I'm never going to agree with all of the sentiments that everybody has. That's just par for the course. Um, there are two components of that question. One is about community engagement, which you just heard me say was a priority for yeah. us and... I'm really keen for us to do that quite differently and I do acknowledge that what we've done in the past probably hasn't cut the mustard and could do with some improvement and I'm actually keen to see us completely rewrite the strategy, completely change our approach and help train our staff to get better interactions during community engagement processes. Um, personally, I am quite committed to listening and meeting with folks and I'm often quite generous with my time. Um, and I expect the same of my management and the same of my exec team. Uh, the second part of that question is about customer service and emails and communication not being answered. Look, we are not perfect and we do have a, a journey to go on to improve that. It's certainly been a focus of mine since I've come in. Every manager, every executive has a KPI around that, a key performance indicator that they mm. get assessed on annually. Um, we do need a little bit better system. So at the moment, people email in um, CEO at council. Chances are 99% of the time I don't see those emails because the records department will go through those and allocate them to the responsible officer based on our delegations. And quite often by the time I get involved, the issue has escalated. So, look, if you're not getting a response, if you need to follow up, please do so and don't be afraid to do so. I'm more than happy to get you the answer that you need. 
the team have written a new customer service charter that sets out those standards, um, and that's due to go to council this side of Christmas. It's one thing to have a charter, but it's a whole other thing to deliver on it. But I am quite committed to seeing some improvement in that area. Mm. Um, Because we do have a text line and because we have appealed to our community to to text in, um, I will read to you the the next question. And it says, why have managers been sacked and the six executive leaders now have major pay increases, yet they are not doing any work to justify the cost? Yeah, look, that is an interesting question and there's some facts that need to be set straight there. So there's actually only four people on the exec. There are two directors and a COO and a CFO. The CFO is a chief financial officer and I'm sure I don't need to explain to the community why that role is pivotal and part of the executive right now. That may or may not continue on in another five years, but for now I need that person at the table all the time. Um, And I acknowledge that creating that role has created a burden to the ratepayer, but I can't make any apologies for that role because I need it. And the person I have in that role is absolutely brilliant and I can't pretty much do a day without her (laughs) contribution. Um, In terms of, well, what are they paid? Everybody's pay scale is printed. um, If you're an executive or you meet, it's printed in the annual report every single year and we benchmark ourselves on other local government services exactly the same size as us and the rates that we set we actually do a study on to make sure that we're paying within the market rates so I am 100% confident that they are being paid at a fair rate for a fair day's work. Um, In terms of why were managers made managers sacked Sacked. yeah that is actually a common misconception and i think it's worthwhile setting the record straight on that so there were only two managers as part of the restructure that actually um elected to take voluntary redundancies so when you're a manager in local government you're an award employee so you have quite strong industrial rights and i'm a huge believer in the workers rights and um If your role substantially changes, you can choose not to compete for the role. You can also elect to seek a direct transfer or you can choose a voluntary redundancy. That's part of restructures. Now, there are only two folks who made that choice and um, I'm eternally grateful for all the work that those two folks did, but their roles substantially changed. And again, I can't apologise for changing their roles because I actually really needed different outcomes in those two management roles. And the structure has benefited from creating slightly different management roles with broader responsibility and much, much more kind of um, cohesive teams underneath them. Okay. Uh, third question from this one listener is community would love to know why all councillors have new electric vehicles such privilege using ratepayers money when council is broke also why are charging stations installed at homes rather than council if classified as work vehicles yeah uh, let me just set the record straight on the councillors having cars. I'm sure they'd like to have cars, but they definitely <laughs> don't. So <laughs> please be assured, all ratepayers, that the councillors are not given cars. The only councillor who is, is the mayor. And the mayor position always has a vehicle. 
The Mayor's uh, car was due for replacement. Council had adopted a net zero and um, a zero emissions target and some strategy, and we have been progressively implementing changes to our fleet, looking for hybrid cars, and the Mayor elected to have an electric vehicle. Also, I think, as part of his um, <clears throat> civic responsibilities, he, t- he takes that commitment to the environment pretty seriously. Um, the last part, which is, well, where are all the charging stations? A couple of things. We have been um, working our tails off, trying to apply for grants to be able to install that. Uh, recently, Council allocated $30,000 as part of the um, Coronation Park uh, electricity upgrades to look at what opportunities there could be for EV charging. Um, and we are doing everything that we can to help bring that online as soon as we can because we would love to see some more public charging stations everywhere. In terms of why are they put in people's homes, well, that's an individual choice, um, which I think is wonderful for folks out there to be taking up that opportunity. And the other thing that we are doing is looking at community batteries, and there's one headed into, I think, Minamara or Kayama Downs quite soon. So there's a lot of work happening on that front and a lot of corporate businesses out there, including council, will gradually convert most of their fleet across to electric or hybrid and come up with um, a more diverse fleet, partly because of the fringe benefit tax and the federal government push for corporations like us to actually change their fleets over. So there's some good reasons for it. But Mm. in summary, councillors don't have cars and we're doing everything we can to get more charging stations. Thank you. Uh, Jane Stroud is with me and we have got questions coming in on the text line. I've got another one for you now, Jane. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. All right. For Jane Stroud, when the assessing officer for a housing DA has objections that could be addressed with an internal meeting with applicant and common sense, would this not ease KMC workload? Secondly, as a ratepayer, I am fined if I don't pay rates on time. However, if KMC, Kiama Municipal Council, don't meet their self-imposed timeframes, DA responsibilities or DA response sorry there is no recourse for applicant is this fair I have many more however not directed at CEO she took on a monster of a job cheers Mark Bryant morning Mark (laughs) how are you (laughs) yeah no look that's actually there are a couple of really good questions um First of all, yeah, common sense in the planning process would be really helpful. Uh, Look, planning in New South Wales is actually quite radically different from planning in Queensland. In fact, where I'm from, we work on a 20-day DA assessment and there are really strong penalties attached with the councils not meeting those targets. Um, Minister Scully has made some quite public uh, comments around councils really needing to comply with the 40 days. Uh, Applicants always have the right to actually pursue deemed refusal after 40 days too. So I'm often surprised at why more folks don't. Um, That said, it has been really tough for council in the uh, planning is a national skill shortage everywhere. Mm. And we did a number of months this year with absolutely no planners. And at one point, as I said to the councillors, you had me picking up the tools and doing assessments just to try and get them out the door. Um, I agree that we need to do better in terms of processing our DA timeframes. 
And the second part of your question, which was about... Uh, as a rate power, I'm fine. Oh, penalties, yeah. 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 yeah, so to get back to your point about should we be fined, uh, look, the Minister for Planning has made it pretty loud and clear that he expects councils to do better and that the state may intervene if we aren't doing better. And that message has been hard for the sector to hear, but I think we all agree that given the state and the federal priorities around housing and the national housing crisis that we're all stuck in, our job as part of that process is pivotal. I assume they're looking at all kinds of intervention measures, including penalties, fines or non-compliance notices. Don't forget that local government is an instrument of state, which is how we've ended up with a performance improvement order. And let me tell you, as somebody who's spent nine months working on one of those and under one of those, you don't want one in your council. And I think it's in all of our interests to try and get the assessments done and get them out so that we don't end up with PIOs. Well, I hope that um, that, that answers your questions, Mark. And it's a beautiful day. It's 8.51. It's Melbourne Cup Day today. Oh, yeah. Isn't it? Uh, need to get the hat ready later, I think. Um, okay, Jane Stroud, I've got another question for you. Now, this is from somebody in my yoga class. Okay. If that's all right. I'm no good at yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Our daughter has written twice to the council about lack of footpaths, particularly in the small block on Barney Street between Shoalhaven Street and Irvine Street. The road does a small curve there, and it's quite dangerous dodging parked cars and traffic while pushing a pram and walking the dog. It's not possible to push a pram on the grass and there are often primary school children walking over there. Mm. It's actually a really good question. So uh, half the answer to this is the same question I asked the organisation about a month ago. We have a councillor who's put up a notice of motion around the construction of a footpath on a particular road and I was interested in how many people walk that road so I walked it myself Mm. and to get there I walked down the exact same street that is mentioned in that text message and nearly got squashed quite a few times, although I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It is actually quite a dangerous street. I agree, and cars tend to go up that street quite fast. So I returned from that walk and actually emailed the Director of Infrastructure and asked, how do we prioritise and what's the criteria? And do we do Mm. any pedestrian assessments? and any speed monitoring in terms of what, how do we decide what's yeah. the priority for a footpath? Because I would like to see us make sure that there is some logical criteria that you can actually answer that sort of question with. Yeah. Now, I'm yet to get a response back from that email. So when I get that response, I will happily write you an email, Bernie, and you're welcome to read it out. But in a usual council environment, there should be a criteria that's mm. used about when a footpath is required and then typically you don't end up with footpaths on both sides you'll end up with a footpath yeah. on one side but i will take that question on notice and i'll send it in to our director of infrastructure and i'll personally come back to you with the answer on that one but i share that that listener's concern that road is actually quite dangerous and there are school kids that frequently walk that road and i would love to see a footpath down that road fantastic uh, I mean, that's a real answer to a question. Thank mm. you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> 
The other query that she had is that the grass cutting of reserves and parks, they are mown on a six-weekly rotation, which is fine in winter, but definitely not often enough in spring and summer. Our closest park is the one adjacent to Bonaire Oval and by the entrance to the native garden. When the grass gets to knee level, it's not pleasant and impossible to see any snakes that may venture out from the native garden. It's also dangerous for children playing there. Um, yeah. Yeah, mow cycles is a real issue that touches the whole community. Uh, we do, so it's a winter six-week cycle, but it's shorter in summer. That said, it's not sometimes enough and if we have warm weather with a bit of rain Mm -hmm. and it creates a good growth season the grass will get away from us um you know last week you asked me about service reviews and this is actually why a business should always do a service review so if i am to go and hang out with my parks team they will tell me uh that they have had the same number of staff for about the last 17 years And in that time, every time we assess a development and take on a park or take on construction or add to the work that they need to do, that's where a service review actually needs to look at. Have you got sufficient human resources and is the cycle of mowing frequent enough? Yes, no. And either what are you going to do to fix that? It's either a more frequent cycle or more people to help mow the grass. That's why service reviews are so important Mm. because for those blokes and women to get up every morning and to start your job, knowing that you're never going to finish and you're never going to make the customer happy, I genuinely worry about where you get your satisfaction from working for KMC. So to me, that's why businesses do service reviews, to answer that very question. And it's one of the things that we are having a look at at the moment. Great. Her final question, uh, Kayama has a lack of childcare centres and a wait list for the preschool uh, but I'm not sure that that is a council responsibility, question mark. Yeah, it, it isn't technically a council responsibility. Some councils are involved in the provision of childcare services. We're not. We have some land that is leased to a couple of childcares. Um, there is a new one being constructed and it's under construction at the moment. Childcare is a really challenging industry and I know that there's a shortage. Nearly about 18 months ago, the Bugle ran an article on this. Yeah. One of the things that we can do is work with the state government around investigating how many childcare centres need to go in, making sure that we've got you know, um, good blocks that are actually capable and ready and mm. classified or zoned for the provision of childcare and really advocating to state and to feds and to the private sector around the need for childcare locally. And there is some recent data, I can't remember where I read it now, where we are one of the worst in terms of accessing childcare. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that becomes a genuine barrier for women predominantly, but for families in terms of how they manage their parental responsibilities rather than being involved in the workforce. And that's pretty tough for a community. So, yeah, whilst it's not necessarily our responsibility, Mm. we we can play a role in helping lift up that conversation. Great. You have been listening to Kaima Community Radio and uh, I've had the most incredible morning uh, with two wonderful guests and Jane Stroud has just been with me. Um, I have got a response for you now on the text line from Mark, from Mark Bryant, who posed those questions. And his response is, good to hear Jane acknowledged shortfalls in DA 
assessment process. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. You know, we're not perfect. I've never pretended we are, and I'm happy to hear the feedback. Have a good day. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Mark. Thank you to everyone that has sent in some questions this morning. It's been really interesting. And I have to say that Jane hasn't declined to answer any of those. Quite quite difficult questions, it appeared to me. But um, thank you for being with us, Jane. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. And uh, let me know who's coming next week. Uh, If Neil's coming back or if you're going to be with us, let me know. This podcast was produced by Kayama Community Radio.